You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa, nature's catalyst for optimizing fat metabolism. Hi, and welcome to the OFM Food for Thought podcast. I'm here with co-host Naomi Land. Naomi? Hi. And today's guest is Nicole Racine, and Nicole is one of those regular people that kind of She's kind of the the wallflower. That's kind of what we looked at her as when we when we met at uh, the Metabolics Therapeutics Conference, the first annual one down in Tampa. It was all about ketogenic diets and using the ketogenic diet as as a therapy for metabolics um, issues, including cancer, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, seizures, you name it. The ketogenic diet does it. <laughs> and uh, Nicole's kind of. Uh, She's not one of these people that promotes herself real well, but when, you know, I was, I and John Mahoney were like thinking there's something here. And so got to talking with her more and found out that Nicole is a registered nurse, has a master's in nursing and is a surgical nurse, but she's also a certified diabetes educator, as opposed to somebody like me, who is a non-certified <laughs> di- diabetes educator. But there's probably not much difference, really, right, Nicole? <laughs> well, aside from the certification, I'm sure we both have the same knowledge. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, but Nicole also uh, practices in her daily life, staying in ketosis and staying fit and um, has a great story to tell our audience today. And so we're going to start off, Nicole, um, with your story. We want to hear your story about how you came to this and what you're doing and how you live your daily life and how it works for you. Um, and, and Naomi, I want you to be the gal asking the questions because girls talk and you ask <laughs> questions guys wouldn't think of. So okay. let's go. Tell us all about your, um, your life, Nicole. I mean, I work full time and I'm in school getting my nurse practitioner degree. So I'm pretty normal as far as um, work, school life. Um, I started ketosis um, in November. So I've been doing it six months now, nonstop. Um, And what made you start? Well, I, I knew a lot about it and I would promote it to my clients and I always thought, well, I'm not diabe- diabetic, I'm not overweight, this is a fat loss diet, so I don't need it. But as I started to learn more about the actual biochemistry behind it and the benefits, especially the mental um, benefits of being in ketosis, I thought it was a really, it made sense uh, biologically and uh, with biochemistry that you can do it without um, a fat loss goal, just you know, a way to feel better and perform better and function better in daily life. So I tried it, and from you know, after I did it correctly um, from the beginning, so I didn't have much of a keto flu. Um, so after the first week, I was, I was feeling so much better, I, I just never stopped. And it keeps getting better and better as far as how I feel. That's great. Yeah. And so what, um, how do you help your, I guess keto is very new to diabetes in Australia. So what, how did you become that way in educating your clients? Um, I didn't um, necessarily 
go into diabetes education with the goal of saying everybody needs to be on keto. Um, some people do, some people don't. That's kind of a choice. But um, I think a low-carb, high-fat approach is the best approach um, for a diabetic just because of if you really understand the biochemistry and pathophysiology of the disease, it just makes more sense that they should they would benefit from getting energy um, from fats rather than from carbohydrates. It just makes sense biologically. Um, whether that's a ketogenic state or not um, is up to that person. How long have you been a diabetes educator and what got you on that pathway? Sounds like you've been on that pathway longer than you've been. You Way yourself. longer, yeah. yeah. So ever since I started nursing school and started doing clinicals, that was about five years ago when I was in nursing school, and I was on the floors and doing my clinicals, and I saw how diabetes um, was treated in hospitals after learning about the disease in class and kind of understanding how it works. And then I'd go on the floors and see that they were giving these high-carb meals full of sugar and processed grains. And then I had to give them insulin to cover it. And I remember questioning the doctors, especially this one woman. I remember her blood sugars were insanely high, like 300s, and no one could figure out why she wasn't being controlled. It turns out she was on a tube feeding of Insure, which is basically made out of corn syrup. Um, and I, I, <laughs> I said to the doctors, I was like, why isn't she at least on the diabetic tube feedings glucerna at least, which isn't much better, but at least it's lower in carbs and sugar. And then the dietitian put that order in for glucerna. And I just saw that over and over, like examples like that. And, and then I'd have to be constantly giving them insulin on the floor. So that started it, and then just from there, I mean, I just researched and researched and, you know, found about, out about low-carb, high-fat, and, you know, there's there's so much, and then, you know, I was off from there. Yeah, and that's nothing to say about parental nutrition and all the other oh. crazy things you see in the hospital. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because, really, you're one of those people in the medical uh, community that actually learned and, and, and did the thought process behind it because so many people are just learning by rote memory, you know, right. and, you know, you you take in so much carbohydrate, you titrate your insulin for this much, and nobody thinks. Mm, nobody, nobody thinks about it. It's like, oh, blood sugar is 200, give insulin, better, okay, next meal, it's 200 again, give insulin, and it's just, you just do it, you don't even think about it. Nurses don't even think about it most of the time. Doctors don't either. Nobody does. <laughs> Dietitians don't. Doctors don't. Nurses don't. But well, well, and this brings us to a really salient point um, for our audience that I keep trying to drive home, and and that is the, the whole thing about uh, glucose control in humans. And and maybe you can comment on this, but I've always said, and I'm not I'm not the certified guy. I'm the the village heretic who's saying this, but but you know, um, adult. Fasting blood sugar in a human adult male is amount, you know, that range of 75, that reference range of 75 to 95 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, uh -huh. I don't know what it's in. I can't remember the numbers in millimolars for Australia, but, but that literally amounts to one teaspoon of sugar as glucose. I think, yeah, there's something like very, very small in one teaspoon or four teaspoons. I forget what it is exactly. It's, it's actually one teaspoon when is you do it? the yeah. math. And, it, and actually what you're saying is four teaspoons is sort of the upper limit of what the body can comfortably deal with. 
it's two or three is what I usually say. Like two or three is, is not a big deal for the body. But, you know, when you have a whole grain bagel, which people consider healthy and not sugary, you're just basically mainlining sugar. Yeah, that's about 60 grams of carbs. That's, yeah, that's about, I don't know, what's that divided by four? Yeah. I can't do that. 240 calories of of glucose, glu- glucose polymers in the form of what they call amylopectin A, which starts to break down into free glucose the moment it hits the amylase in your saliva. Yeah, it doesn't take much to, to keep your blood sugar level at 75 to 95, yet um, we're telling diabetics to eat 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrates per meal, and m- many of them I've seen even in the hospital serve trays well over that. Right, and for the audience, what she's saying there, one teaspoon is four to five grams and you're putting literally 10 times that that ideal blood sugar level into the meal and here's the thing there is no essential carbohydrate there is no essential carbohydrate human beings do not need to intake carbohydrates to live so as a diabetic someone who cannot tolerate carbohydrates has lost the ability to process them because of pancreas pancreatic burnout why are we continuing to feed them carbohydrates and tell them to eat carbohydrates you know what i'm saying that just doesn't make sense to me yeah and i think for the audience what i keep trying to hammer home is is the body sees this as sugar everybody kind of universally knows sugar's bad the word sugar but they don't get that healthy Grains. Healthy whole grains, fruits, uh, high glycemic fruits like a banana or a pineapple or a mango is pretty much the equivalent of sugar as far as the yeah. body sees it. As far as the body sees it, once every every carbohydrate, whether it's complex carbohydrates, fruits, um, whole grain pasta, quinoa, whatever it is, it ends up in the body as glucose. Um, it's just a matter of how long it takes the body to break it down. At the end of the day... It ends up as blood sugar or fructose in the liver. And because that, that whole process is very tightly controlled, now we're going to go back to this a little bit. That 75 to 95 is one teaspoon. You're adding multiples. If you're a type 1 diabetic or even a well-advanced type 2 diabetic, that's, uh, as you as a nurse, that will kill somebody if they don't take their insulin, right? Yeah. Put them in a diabetic well, yeah. coma and away they go. DKA. If you don't, if yeah, if you're not producing insulin, you'll you'll go into DKA without insulin. But um, there's no need for that. There's no need for carbohydrates. If you don't consume carbohydrates, your body will make carbohydrates enough to get to to stay in that 75 to 95 range through a process of gluconeogenesis, either uh, from. Gl- glycogen in the liver or from amino acids in the diet. Um, there's really no reason to, to eat so many carbohydrates if your body does not have the ability to process them anymore. Right. And that's, that's a, that's a, uh, the key there is to become fat adapter in ketosis because right. that's, that's what's going to send the sort of signaling to go into uh, the kind of neo, gluconeogenesis that won't catabolize uh, muscle protein starvation cat- ketosis will will catabolize right. muscle protein, but nutritional ketosis won't. You actually make it from fat, and uh, are w- well adapted. Well, you make AT- You start to make ATP from fat. Um, 
even before ketosis, your body uh, puts free fatty acids into um, the Krebs cycle and makes ATP in the mitochondria just like it does with glucose. You can use glucose, you can use fatty acids, one or the other, without ever even being in ketosis. So initially when I put diabetics on a low-carb, high-fat diet, even if they're not into ketosis, if they're able to keep their insulin low enough um, and consume enough fat or release, start to release the fat stored in their fat cells, they'll start to use fat for energy um, instead of glucose. And when you're not having to constantly use glucose for energy, you find that you are less hungry between meals. Um, you don't get that hangry feeling when your blood sugar starts to drop because you're able to access those fat stores and use fat uh, to produce ATP and produce energy. Um, and that's even without even being in ketosis, which I think is cool. Yeah, that's right. It's quite amazing. And people, like, because we've been so bombarded with the media and, you know, you have to have these whole grains in your diet and um, everyone is fearful of cutting out them. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah. And and fearful of adding fat in. So they'll cut, they might cut the grains out or carbs, but then they're still eating, like, lean chicken breasts and, like, lettuce and egg whites and that you know that doesn't work either no it works even worse because the protein yeah, gets then, converted into sugar and then the amine yeah. groups get dumped to your kidneys and work them over yeah so and even i've noticed that's one of the things i love about being in ketosis and a low carb high fat is you can go longer without eating and not feel like you have to be eating every two hours because you you know like you're not getting those lows and highs all the time. Yeah, it's quite amazing, isn't it? And um, that three o'clock lull is not there anymore. Yeah, it's, and I've never before experienced that in my life of just having energy all day. And yeah. it's not like when you get hungry, it's not like, oh, my God. Uh, like I need to eat the house. Feeling. Yeah, it's kind of like <laughs> I'm hungry, but if I can wait, an, I'll wait an hour if that's cool. If not, you know, whatever. It's, it's helped me be much more flexible, I guess, which is cool. Like, I just like all those other benefits. I have not lost weight. I have not lost fat on it because I don't do it for fat loss. Um, so, it's you know, it's easy to tailor to whatever the person's goals are. Sure. And what so what sort of things do you eat? And what's your um, your favorites? I don't um, – I'm not a big recipe person, so let me just – preface that and I hate here's the thing I hate going over what do I eat because I don't want someone to say oh well I'm going to mimic that and that's going to be my plan do you know what I'm saying I think that's very can get very um counterproductive yeah um, but I'll just say you know I, I eat a lot of fat a lot of animal fat a lot of meat um very minimal um carbohydrates so basically minimal vegetables I don't like a lot of bulk so I keep them pretty limited and um, high fat dairy nuts no fruit and I keep my carbs to about 15 grams per day and my fats are typically around 120 oh you're you're Pro on it you're on it oh yeah protein's pretty minimal that's fabulous and and anybody who's seen nicole knows uh, she doesn't have any weight uh, issues 
Yeah, so I just have to ramp up the fat a lot to keep me from losing weight. But, you know, it's it's titratable to people's goals. And if someone's trying to lose fat, um, I help them do that in a way. But, you know, just by titrating their fat a little bit more. Yeah, because once you once you get in ketosis, then the, the whole caloric balance thing does work. It does work a lot differently than the carb way. It works. But- but it's mm-hmm. still calories in, calories out. You just don't all of a sudden pack on the, the weight really fast and get the hunger cravings really fast. You just sort of like slowly start to creep up. So we had a question from one of our clients. Uh, was it Gail King, Naomi? Yes, that's right. Okay, yes. well, we're going we're gonna to create a little bit of some, some excitement here. So, Nicole, tell us about your lipid panel and, and what your cholesterol numbers are. And I mean, I don't even know how they pack that much into you, into that little frame of yours. Yeah, I'm not even sure where it all goes. Well, I'm sure um, it goes somewhere, but I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> this is going to be shocking. Um, so I just had my advanced lipid panel done. So that's not just the total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, but also the particle sizes, LP, little a, all of all of it. So you had an NMR, uh, an NMR, NMR, yeah. NMR lipid profile. And this is people who who people who are considering this this sort of uh, way of life, the OFM ketotic fat adapted way of life. Make sure when you get your lipids, you get a baseline before, and then after that. Get lipid panels, get the NMR, because that's going to parse out some really important information so your doctor doesn't try to have you on a statin stat, right? They still will try. Yeah. So anyway, let's 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 hear the numbers. So my I had these done in February of 2016, so that's about two months ago now. Um, my total cholesterol is 628. Uh, my HDL was 120. My LDL was 480, and my triglycerides were 142. So that's the traditional. Um, most people would look at that and probably want to send me to an emergency room. And the one good thing from that is my HDL uh, triglyceride ratio is near 1, 142 over 120. What was your total again? Total is 628. 628. Now, what was your LDL? 480. 480 and 120. Okay. Okay, so, yeah. So, 628. I'm going to put it on the converter here. And for all you people in Australia, that's 16.24 millimolars. That's quite high, right, Pete? That's like, through the top, that's like Nicole said, they would, most, most doctors would want to rush her to the emergency room like now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The baseline, Naomi, just for reference for the audience in Australia, is where they want to keep you below is 5.12. One seven. And, Point and five, United States. Yeah. In the United States, it's below 200. Right. So I just plugged in 200 into the calculator, and, and in millimolars, that's 5.172. Okay. So 5.172 millimolars for people in Europe and Australia, and then we got 628 is and she's 16.24 so she's over three times what the top of the reference range that the pharmaceutical companies have engineered and um and that's just with her total yeah so why i'm not so worried about it is because i had the the ldl particle numbers done the whole lipo profile done um 
The LDL particle number is a little high. It's 2152. Optimal is less than 1260. But... The small LDL small is within range, and those are the ones that are the most harmful. What was your, what was the number on the on the VLDLs? The pattern. The VLDLs they don't give it; they just give the different sizes of the right. LDL particle numbers. So the LDL small is um, one fifty five, and optimal is less than one sixty two. Okay, so you're so t- I'm, yeah you're in the I'm reference op- range. You're in the optimal. I'm op- yeah. My um, LDL medium is 345, and that's in the high range. And HDL large, they like it above, let's see, it's within range, 7,964 for HDL large, so large fluffy ones. So in terms of the the particle sizes, you're you're just fine. And your triglycerides aren't, aren't too high either. They're 146. And so LDL pattern can be either pattern A or pattern B. Pattern B is harmful. Pattern A is the optimal pattern. And they look at all overall particle sizes, uh, numbers, um, large fluffy versus small and dense, and minor pattern A. And the LDL peak size, which is basically like the highest size they see, is 226. And they like that above 218. So I'm optimal with that as well. Wonderful, wonderful. So, yeah, and, and you know, like what we've seen with, with the athletes we work with is this typical, this is a very typical pattern with, with males. Um, we're seeing high 200s, 300s in the total cholesterol range, um, which is about uh, 10, 11 millimolars. Uh, for Australia and, and uh, Europe, uh, and again, a lot higher than what people are used to, what the pharmaceutical companies would like you to to, to think you you need. But um, all these people are, are performing on a level that's uh, considered not possible until the faster study came out. So one of the interesting things we are seeing, though, is that if you're doing, was this was your, did you happen to take your um, lipid panel after working out pretty hard? I work out pretty hard every day, so likely yes. I don't remember specifically, though. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because when you uh, when you read the textbooks on the physiology of how LDLs work, they're sent out by the liver to, you know, rebuild, to send the cells what they need to build the hormones. And what we've seen typically is people have a really good spike in their LDLs if, if they've just finished a big block of training or a big endurance event. And which would make sense in terms of uh, a proper person, you know, in the metabolic health of fat adaptation. Um, that's what the liver is supposed to do, right? You're supposed to be repairing and building up the cells and hormones. But that's that's. Um, I think uh, Gail's gonna <laughs> Gail's gonna feel like her uh, L, her cholesterol is pretty puny, eh, Naomi, compared to Nicole? yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> but you know it's quite funny here because um even if it's higher um or a little bit around that because they've reduced that level now um they'll pr- try and put them on statins straight away you know oh, like yeah. it's just okay let's let's medicate let's medicate well it's because they're treating numbers and not actually looking at outcomes um, yeah. And and why 
lowering cholesterol. It, it's just they'll see a number and they'll treat the number and they're not really understanding why. Or is that good for the the human being or not, or the patient? It, it's literally just treating number. Just like you're t- treating blood glucose with insulin, treat, treat cholesterol with a statin. It's literally just treating numbers. Well, and, and what, what, what I'm finding kind of, what I'm saying, um, and I said at the low-carb veil um, conference in my presentation is what we're seeing, what we're witnessing, and, and you can probably corroborate this with your own experience, is when you get fat adapting, you start combining it with exercise of any volume, there's a whole other metabolic um, paradigm out there of health that's much different from what the current paradigm is. Right. No, yeah, I was going to say I agree with that completely. Yeah. So, but 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 it because it's it it's outside the the current what the current medical description of health and fitness is, um, nobody's buying it. So, right. So it's it's a pretty big obstacle this cholesterol thing, and this is just one of many things we're seeing that's just doesn't fit in the model. But um, thanks to people like you, you know that word is getting out there. Yeah, and so like I just really want to push that point home is that like if you're doing low carb high fat and you see your cholesterol numbers go up it's not necessarily a bad thing and you don't need to drop it or go you know go on a statin or whatever um and i would like to also talk about inflammation and my inflammation markers which are i think more important than the cholesterol numbers for example there's another uh Pro, or lipoprotein called LP little a, which isn't, um, it's like a subclass of the lipoproteins, but it's more atherogenic and more causative of uh, heart disease and stroke and all of the things we think about when we think about LDL. This one is more um, inflammatory and will cause, is more likely to cause atherosclerosis. And I had mine measured and it was basically less than zero. They couldn't even measure it. And that's, you know, eating all the high, the high fat diet I'm eating. All those um, cholesterols and saturated fats, right? That I'm eating. Yeah. Mine literally, they said not measurable and I've never seen it not measured, like not measurable. And I've looked at a lot of these, uh, lipo pro- profiles and I've always seen, you know, at least 10, 20, um, they like it less than 75. Mine's less than zero, basically not measurable. Um, my HSCRP, which is a inflammatory marker, um, very indicative of cardiovascular inflammation. If you're high HSCRP, the cholesterol is more likely to get inside the wall of the arteries. That's what causes inflammation. You, you mean um, you mean accumulate? Accumulate inside the walls of the arteries. Um, HSCRP is indicative of cardiovascular inflammation. Uh, mine was less than point. Two, 0.2, so less than one. So, so all your meta, all the really important, more detailed metabolic markers are yeah. you're in perfect health. Right, and my fasting insulin, which I like to see less than ten, um, was one point three. What's the reference range for normal people? Um, most people, I would say insulin resistance starts to be around above twenty fasting. So uh, if your insulin is above 20, starting to be 30, fasting, that means you're hyperinsulin. You have insulin all the time in your blood. You're more likely to store fat. Your insulin system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, 
10 micrograms per deciliter, I think it is. You're talking about somebody who's highly insulin sensitive. Now, since you're, you're, you've been in this state, um, have you tried reintroducing carbs at all just for um, to, to experiment? No. No. Okay. I never had a cheat, and I never, I never. It's not cheating, though. Well, I never experiment. I never had the desire. I'm just like, you know, once I do something, I just kind of do it. And that's, well, a, and that's, that's, a re- that's the reality of, of how good it can work once you get it working for you. Um, were you were you um, high carb or low fat before in any time in your period of life, or how did you? I, when I was younger, I did, like, you know, the typical healthy eating of, you know, a teenager, 20-something girl, like low fat, uh, healthy whole grains, lean meats kind of thing. And then I kind of did body a bodybuilding type of diet where I was very, very high protein, way too much. I was up to like 200 grams a day for my size. That's ridiculous. What? Yeah, it was ridiculous. And I, Naomi, I was if just, you ever saw this girl, she's tiny, tiny, yeah. tiny, tiny. <laughs> my weight, that was ridiculous. And it was lowish fat, very, very high protein, and then, you know, whole, whole grains and things, vegetables and fruits. So... I tried that for a while, and I was yeah, I was not feel like my stomach was always in pain and whatever. And that was the hardest thing for me when switching to keto was lowering the protein down and getting the fat higher. And it was literally I was low carb and super super high protein for a while, and then I I felt awful. Um, and then I finally got the protein low enough and the fat higher, and that's when I went into ketosis. I felt so much better. So I'm going to ask the question because there's a lot of banter out there now on the internet. Um, some of the quote unquote people who are self-described experts in paleo and uh, fitness are saying that women shouldn't do keto and shouldn't try to get do low carb, etc. And I just wanted to get your take on it. Um, of course, you're you're a hyper adopter. You're doing well on it, and Naomi. does too she's you know she's highly athletic but uh you know what's your what's your opinion on that because there's you know last year at paleo fx sarah ballantyne gave a gave a talk on on why people shouldn't do keto and and uh you know there was an an interview with tamson lewis on endurance planet and she's a triathlete slash medical doctor and she was uh, saying most people shouldn't do keto, and and um, so we just wanted to get your take on it. You know, I don't ever want to bash anybody else about what they feel they should do or shouldn't do, or say one diet is good for everybody. If I think women can try keto and see how they feel, and maybe a lot of people confuse. I I have a hard time with this because I don't ever want to bash anybody. So I I agree with you. You know, I I agree. I I always say, look at the person giving the advice, ensure that they're credentialed. If you're diabetic, yes, I think low carb, high fat, and a ketogenic diet is optimal. If not, and you're a woman dealing with hormonal issues, I think it could be very beneficial. I don't think there's any reason that women specifically shouldn't do keto. I don't think. That's a knowledgeable statement to make. Um, I think that a lot of women and men who deal with food addiction and that can make um, emotional issues surrounding food and food addiction and sugar and carbohydrates and 
very difficult for some people, and maybe women have that a little bit more just because of some of the hormonal issues. Um, I don't know. That's a really hard question because I don't ever want to say one diet's right for everybody, but I don't think it's right to say that women shouldn't do keto or low carb. Well, and I think you 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 bring up a really good point because I don't want to. I think you know everybody's goal. The you know these other people, Sarah Ballantyne, Tamsin Lewis. I mean, we all have the common goal of helping people be more fit. But the but. The, the thing is, I think a lot of people really don't under, understand keto because in the, until recently in modern times, uh, ketosis was only seen in starvation ketosis and ketoacidosis, which is a condition in type 1 diabetics when they have no insulin. But I think also with my experience coaching a lot of athletes and seeing what works and what doesn't work, there's, as I say, there's 101 ways to get keto wrong. It's not just something yeah. like, <laughs> you know, you know this because you, you studied it and got it right, but... Um, you know, people tend to not lower the carbs low enough or yep. they, they try to exercise through it or they don't bring the salt at, back or like you experience they try it. to make like keto desserts or yeah, like Yeah, yeah, and they, or the protein's too oh. high or they're stressing about getting everything perfect and the stress causes a cortisol response and then, you know, you're all over the map. Um, I think the way to frame it is ketosis should be a goal and until people get sorted out, Sometimes they, they you, you may not be able to get there, but ketosis, being able to get into in and out of ketosis should be a good goal because that really is a state of, of fat adaptation. Yeah, and I don't I don't think it's it's uh, it's, uh, it's right to say that you need carbohydrates for hormonal balance. I, I think that's very misleading for people. Yeah, you, you know the thing is, is, is um, what's going on there is um, I think that what we've seen with athletes is, is if they're not, you know, metabolically fit to go into to ketosis or make that shift, sometimes they need the carbohydrates because their body's pinging, you know, they're stressing and their body's pinging cortisol right. and looking for sugar, so they need a little bit of sugar. Otherwise, they'll go into some to this quart of quote-unquote adrenal fatigue is the term everybody uses but it's really not I hate that term I know I know I know that's why I, I say, can't stand it yeah because it's not really true adrenal fatigue it's maybe adrenal stress <laughs> I mean it's just there's no definition of it and it's not a real medical term and people throw it around and and then they, yeah. they come up with all these crazy like theories about being tired and then they need adrenal fatigue so then they need to up their carbs and it's mostly people that aren't athletes and I think it's just like you're looking for a reason to eat sugar again I don't know, but I just think it's a lot. There's a lot of like, it's thrown around a lot, and I don't think there's any really uh, scientific basis for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, talking with Dr. Edwards, he was saying, you know, if you've ever seen real adrenal fatigue, it's not pretty. It's very different from what everybody's talking yeah. about. There's a lot of adrenal, real adrenal disorders, and they're they're not. Yeah, they're not pretty, and I, yeah. I, I, again, I don't want to bash anybody or any kind of community or whatever people think. Uh, but the, yeah, I don't do the adrenal. I don't buy the adrenal fatigue yeah, story. Yeah, I think we could agree on a lot of terminology out there. The other one, the other one I hate, <laughs> the other one I, I have a tr- trouble with that people throw around a lot is the term biohacking. Oh my God, I can't even. <laughs> Good. See, we got something in common. Do I have to pay you two dollars a minute for this? Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah, because I mean, you can't, you don't biohack a, a biological system because every time you touch right. one thing, you touch everything else. Everything else changes and reinfluences what you just touched. And it's like, it's it's like some of these terms we come up with are up like with. like funny, funny. Yeah, and it's like all the biohackers want to do keto, but they actually don't want to do keto. They don't want to actually do the work to be in ketosis. They just want to like do it, like find a, a half way to do it without actually doing it. I think a lot of them are very type, type A engineering uh, numbers yeah. people, and, and it's a very organic process. Yeah, and you actually do have to do like a lot of work and commitment, and there's no really way to hack it except by adopting a ketogenic diet and lifestyle. So tell us about your diabetes education. What would you like to know about it? What do you do, and how do you deal with um, the different like the different types of people in educating them and how do you choose like keto against just a regular diet that a normal dietitian would put you on um well i i counsel uh clients one-on-one um mostly type twos i've done with a couple uh work with a couple of di- type one diabetics which is very different um type two diabetics i mean the first thing i i try to help them do is get uh, get on a low-carb, uh, high-fat diet, and that's just basically teaching them the nitty-gritty of cutting out carbs, cutting out sugars, teaching them where to find sugars in the diet, because most people don't even realize um, where sugars are found in the diet, um, and what is a sugar, and what isn't a sugar, and what foods turn into sugar, um, and I start teaching them about the different foods and how they affect blood sugar. Basically, drive home the point that carbohydrates are non-essential. And when your body stops being able to use carbohydrates for energy because of the large amounts of carbohydrates they've been consuming their whole life co- has caused their pancreas to burn out, why would we continue to have them eat carbohydrates um, and you have to use insulin or for most people it's oral diabetes medications. So we just basically start out by lowering the carbohydrates, um, learning what an appropriate amount of protein is and um, increasing the fats a lot and getting over. um, I spend a lot of time debunking the myths and teaching people that saturated fat isn't bad and Staying away from polyunsaturated fats and getting uh, omega threes and omega six uh, fatty acids back in balance, and cutting out vegetables, cutting out refined foods, uh, cutting down on fruits, cutting down basically getting all the grains and sugars out of their diet and getting fats back in. Um, ketosis, I leave I leave that up to the person if they want to try that or not. Wow, that's amazing. Like, um, and do you find that there is a, like, how do people cope with that when they've come from a different education? And how do the doctors and the other nurses cope with your style of education as opposed to um, the, the mediocrity style of education? Well, I don't talk about, or I don't, have to usually have to deal with other doctors unless you know it's with the with the client's primary care physician or other nurses because my um I do that as a freelance so I don't I'm not employed by a hospital or I don't I'm not employed by a physician are you doing um, one-on-one or groups or how do people find you 
I do one-on-one. I have a website where people can book uh, consultations with me. What is that website for the people in the Chicago area and, and all around? I do, I do. I do Skype. I do anything. It's um, NicoleRacine.com, N-I-C-O-L-E-R-E-C-I-N-E.com. And I have everything on there. They can book appointments with me. They can email me. Um and I do Skype consultations, and I give them lists. I give them education materials on how to appropriately adopt the low-carb, high-fat diet. Um, and it takes a lot of education because most people don't realize how much of a change it is to cut out the grains and really up the fats. Because if you don't up the fats and you just try to cut the grains out, you'll feel awful. And that's mostly mm. the reason why people don't want to stick with it. And and also fitting it into eating out and traveling and those sorts of things too is quite challenging for some. It is, but it isn't. Once you learn how to do it, I found that it's so much more easier than trying to eat out and order a low-fat meal with healthy whole grains and then trying to figure out how many carbohydrates are in this meal, how much insulin do I need to give myself, you know, like it's it's so much more straightforward and easy than hey, trying to. Hey, the dog is here. Uh, sorry, I don't know what that noise was. No, that was that was Bella, right? Oh. Yeah, sorry. That, no, nothing to apologize for. We got a guest appearance here. That's podcasting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I find that people find it's so much more easier than trying to, to count carbs while you're out and well, cover yeah. that with insulin or whatever that case Yeah, and, and because you're not being held hostage by those food cravings, you can make those easy choices and, and yep. feel sat, satiated pretty easily. And if there's food not available at the particular restaurant or whatever the case may be, you're at a wedding and they don't serve the food you like, it's no big deal to skip a meal and wait till later to eat. Like, it's, it doesn't even phase you anymore in ketosis or on low-carb high fat. Well, it sounds, it sounds actually like you say you don't push the ketosis, but it sounds like the way you educate people and guide them, you're pretty much steering them down that road. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the person, but for the most part, I, I do try. And are most people receptive to this, or do you get some people that really balk, or how does how does how's it working well, for you? Here's the thing is that the people that come to me are looking for specifically the kind of approach I use. So I don't, I don't generally try to convince people. I don't, you know, I'm just not that person. So they're already, they're already looking for that. Solution. Yeah. And they, they want to know how to do it and I help them to do it correctly. And most people end up being able to get off their medications, lower their insulin if they're on it. Type ones are, are able to decrease their insulin needs and get better blood sugar controls. Most people lose weight. It's it's good all around. Now, Nicole, a little little quick technical question here with your type one diabetics. Are you are you controlling mostly? Are you trying to do it by controlling their ketones through insulin versus? No, so it's it's a matter of getting them just to be on the basal insulin. So they're always going to need that basal insulin, whether it's through a pump or whether it's just through a long acting insulin injection uh, once or twice a day. Usually twice is better. Um, but not needing those uh, mealtime boluses for the carbohydrates. So if they're just getting that basal insulin, um, 
So, so you are really are essentially you are controlling their ketones, which, which is because you know the, the interesting thing that people don't understand is insulin is vital for a lot of functions, but for the glucose and ketones, on on the when you have a lot of glucose, insulin controls the glucose levels in your serum, and then if you have low insulin, if you have no insulin, your your ketones will go out of whack and kill yeah. you. So it's like you have to have key, you have to have insulin. In low levels to control ketones as much as you need a lot of insulin when you have too much sugar. Right, and I mean the only the, the thing with diabetic ketoacidosis is what you're talking about is that only happens when the blood sugar goes insanely high, um, and the the cells are not getting insulin at all, sugar at all. So the the cells are basically starving, and blood sugar is high and and ketones are crazy, crazy high. So they're in a, a, a metabolic uh, acidic state. Um, ketosis for type 1 diabetics is exactly the same as ketosis is for me or anybody. Yep. It's um, Their blood sugars are normal and uh, their ketones are, you know, within normal range above 0.5, but not crazy high like in diabetic ketoacidosis. It's a much different state. Right. And, and they're not only normal, but they're stable. Right. And I always tell them, too, that being in ketosis protects them from the lows, which they're all very afraid of, because a lot of them, if they go low, they go low a lot more often than than type 2s because they're on that, they're on, they need insulin, but if they give themselves too much accidentally, they go into a coma. Um, but I always tell them that it's kind of cool if they're in ketosis because then they have that backup of the ketones when their blood sugar goes too low for their brain so that they don't go into a coma. Well, their that, brain that must be really effective for their sleep patterns because I know that, that for type 1 diabetics and even type 2s, that's that's an issue at night. Well, the, the issue with type 1s is that they can die in their sleep. If, they're, yeah. if they go into a diabetic coma in their sleep because they accidentally got too much insulin from their pump, they, will, they could die in their sleep, especially little kids. So... And I always tell them, you don't have to worry, you, you do have to worry about the lows, but not as much because, number one, they don't happen as much because you're not giving yourself so much insulin. Number two, your body's able to use ketones in, in, the, in the event that your blood sugar goes too low. Yeah. So, well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm going to have to wrap it because Nomi's got hers. I've got my charges to go grab. Um but this has been a fascinating conversation, and and I think the way we need to frame this end is what we're talking about here is is this kind of levels of blood sugar that people on a high carb diet are seeing is actually toxic. Toxic. And yeah, it'll kill you. And you know we're talking about diabetic comas, uh, hypoglycemia, all the things that can kill people. And you know the fascinating thing is our bodies actually are made to deal with it. It's just that they can only do so much for so long. Right. One last thing, chronic high blood sugar for people that are pre-diabetic or diabetic, chronic uncontrolled high blood sugar will lead to diabetic neuropathy, amputated limbs, blindness, um, heart disease, a whole host of other things. Not, not, not to mention erectile dysfunction. That too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, all good reasons to kind of start looking at how to restrict carbs and get back to a more natural state. Um, and so thanks very much, Nicole. Um, 
for your time. Oh. Let's have you on again. Thank you, Nicole. Yes. Problem. It was great talking with you guys. Yeah, and we'll get you out there and uh, let us know if you need anything. And looking forward to hearing about your next uh, lipid panel.